Well, I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to come here again to the Portland. And uh, I've been visiting my sister in Vancouver. She's 90 years old. And uh, sounds at our age, old age, to see each other because it, She's 90, I'll be 88 in July, and you don't know how much longer we'll be around. So I thought to take this opportunity to visit North American monasteries. I don't know if it's my swan song or last visit. <laughs> so it's uh, good to see that. Dhamma Center developing so well. And I went to visit Ajahn Sudanto at the Pacific Hermitage yesterday. And it's uh, interesting to see, you know, how much interest there is worldwide in the teachings of the Buddha. Because when I became interested in Buddhism in around 1955, there, uh, you had, couldn't tell anyone you were Buddhist because they would think you were crazy. So I was a secret Buddhist for many years. But the teaching of the Buddha is one, the thing that's so attractive about it and, uh, and appropriate for this time in the history of countries like this, the United States, is that it opens up the reflective capabilities of human individuals. And those are not generally appreciated in modern Western culture and society, because Western culture is very much materialistically based. And, uh, um, you know, they love science, psychology, and, and raise up all these kind of modern inventions to learn more about phenomena, to explore phenomena to its ultimate, to its ultimate possibilities. And uh, the Buddha, whose teaching is you know, we consider it like 2,565 years old. That's just an estimate. It's an ancient teaching, but it's a timeless teaching. It's not about Asian culture or a particular Indian culture of 2,500 years, but it's about being a human being and waking up to ultimate reality. So I just gave you the introduction of the Namo uh, Tassa, the respect to the Holy One, and then uh, give you the three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and then the five precepts, moral precepts. So this, this gives us, uh, this is a part of a ceremony of the Theravadan Buddhist school. And, uh, and so much of it is just ceremonial chanting, like in using the Pali language and so forth is taking uh, on the, 
the cultural aspects, ceremonial aspects of, especially as, as we learned it in Thailand. But what is the real meaning of it? You know, what do we respect? What do we respect to the Holy One? What is the Holy One right now? And these are ways of investigating the present moment that we're all experiencing. So it's not about trying to figure out why I suffer as a person or who's to blame for my misery or, you know, to keep trying to analyze myself as a separate person, but to take the opportunity to investigate who am I anyway? What am I when I take refuge? in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, what does that really mean? Is it just high ceremony, Theravada and Buddhist ceremony that we, we bring to Oregon at this time? Or is it much more meaningful than just a, a ceremonial uh, acquisition? So over the years, I had plenty of time to contemplate what Bhutto Tamo Sangho, Buddha Dhamma Sangha really means in terms of the here and now, the reality that that we're all experiencing because the ultimate reality is here and now. It's not about something remote uh, that you have to work toward or find in some other place. And the Buddhist teachings are teachings pointing always to the here and now. It's a timeless, a, we said we chant a Kalika Dhamma, timelessness. It's apparent here and now. What is a Dhamma? When we take refuge in Dhamma, what, is, what does that mean in terms of the reality of here and now? And these are important questions to ask yourself because. <clears throat> The, important, the separate sense of separation that personalities give us. And in the American cultural conditioning, it's very important to the ego takes kind of preference over everything. What I think, my feelings, me and mine, and, and uh, the identity with the, the physical appearance, the gender of the body, the age, the color of the skin are all strong identifications that we give great importance to at this time American society does this. So what is apparent here and now that it's not personal, you know, so you ask yourself, know, what is if Santiti Kodama apparent here and now, what is the Dhamma here and now? And this is, you can't define that question, you know, can't give an answer to it in terms of another kind of intelligent interpretation of a parent here and now, but it's the reality of awareness here and now, this is what we share. It's impersonal, it's not personal, like my awareness uh, opposite your awareness. We create that sense of separation because the objects like sitting here looking at you, you're objects of what I see, I consciousness. So I'm conscious, sending my conscious experience out through the organs of my eyes and I see all you people sitting there with masks on. <laughs> and uh, 
<laughs> I wonder who is behind the mask. <laughs> it's a very strange time. But in terms of Dhamma, we're not looking outward. We're not seeking Buddha as some external object or Dhamma as some kind of uh, metaphysical reality that we can't possibly conceive of. So we take refuge in Dhamma, a Pali word. But if it's apparent here and now, what is apparent here and now that each one of us knows is apparent here and now? is that you're conscious. So if I ask any of you, any person, are they conscious, they have to say yes. You don't ask somebody else whether you're conscious or not. There's something apparent here and now. So Dhamma and consciousness, you know, these are words Consciousness is an English word. Dhamma is a Pali word. They're words, they're creations made by human beings. They're not words that, you know, they're creations through thinking. They're thoughts that we create. And we can believe in these thoughts or we can disbelieve in them. But what are thoughts pointing to when the Buddha established his first sermon after his enlightenment. According to this tradition, he taught there is suffering. So that was an important point to make about for all of us, because this realm was as comfortably as we can possibly live in it, uh, with all kinds of the most uh, material advantages, social advantages possible, is still this uh, experience of suffering because we're always identifying with unsatisfactory conditions. The cultural conditioning, the ego itself is a condition created. It's not like a permanent ego or cultural conditioning is acquired, the ego is acquired after you're born, like a newborn infant, doesn't have an ego. It doesn't think about itself as being a, a, anything at all, but it's fully conscious, a human infant form that's fully conscious, that it wasn't created by human beings, wasn't created by Thais or Indians or Americans or anything else. Consciousness is here and now. And this is what we began to do when we talk about mindfulness or awareness, why that is so important these days, why there are so many mindfulness teachings available on the internet, on YouTube and things like that that weren't available when I first became interested in Dhamma. So mindfulness is a very important subject these days. Mindfulness teachers, vipassana practices and so forth are, acquired, are very popular uh, conditions in the minds of many of us at this time. 
So what is mindfulness anyway, when we talk about mindfulness? And of course, we identify usually with when we're driving a car, we have to be mindful. When crossing the street, we're mindful. When looking, when we're reading books, studying subjects at school and so forth, we're mindful of the objects that we're listening to, the music or the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch. We're mindful of objects of the senses. So this is called sending your consciousness out through the sense organs of this material body. So are you, is that all you are is a physical body, a material body made out of food? You know, and these are ways to investigate the reality of conscious awareness here and now, because we're conditioned from our innocent years as a as a growing child, innocent child, we're conditioned to believe what we're told, what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's acceptable or unacceptable. So each one of us has been culturally conditioned through in various ways, whether it's in here in uh, America or or any other country. The cultural conditions can be very different, different emphasis, different. Uh, importance placed on certain virtues or, or ideals, but they're all creations made by other human beings. And so other human beings create languages. So languages are how we communicate on the worldly plane. So we talk to each other about politics, about religion, about culture, uh, we compare things, we have the ability to compare what's what's best and what's the worst and on and on like that. So we live in a world of thoughts, languages, concepts that we never question. Sometimes we never question them, like the, just the language that we speak. It's a creation. It's not, it's not Dhamma. So the word Dhamma is not Dhamma in reality, it's pointing to awareness here and now, consciousness here and now. So the Buddhist teachings are just words, but it's interesting to, to reflect on the fact that his first sermon after, you know, his own enlightened awakening was to emphasize the common experience that every human being has is suffering. There is suffering. It's not a, a kind of belief in suffering. It's not asking to believe in suffering or that life is miserable. So it's not a kind of doctrinal statement that, and, and a kind of negative way of looking at life. But it's a chance to investigate suffering. What is it to under and the insight is to understand it. And to understand suffering doesn't mean to think about it or analyze it, but to reflect on it, one's own experience of being frightened, of being anxious, of being separate. 
worrying what others think. You know, the whole social conditioning is is very much a conditioning to 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 create worry and and anxiety about yourself and competitive educational systems and in the treatment of rewards and punishment for behaviors it's conditioning us to to want to learn how to survive in a family with the parents that we we're born with and and learning how to to manipulate with in in terms of getting being a success getting praise the winning prizes and the fear of failing of being punished rewarded rejected so social conditioning is that way it's about you know who's moral who's immoral who's a criminal who's right who's wrong so we live in a world where there's so much fear generated just through especially on mass media these days because there's so many things wrong with the, with the world that we believe is our reality so then the suffering there is suffering so it's just a a matter of fact statement it's not a doctrine, a religious doctrine to believe in. And it's easy to observe. We all suffer. You know, so like at my age, getting old, the body doesn't function very well. My sight is very, not very good. I, you're all kind of, not only your masks, but there's a kind of haze around everybody. My hearing is not very good. I have to wear hearing aids. Old age is like this. And then if, if I see it in a personal way, then I suffer from it. Because as a personality, as an ego, my ego was formed when I was young. So the young ego, you know, doesn't want, doesn't think it's ever going to get old, but then the body ages as the years pass, and that's just the way it is. So the Buddha was emphasizing using old age, sickness, and death as ways of reflecting the nature of, of existence within this particular form, human form, that we all share. We all live within these human forms that are separate from each other, that we can be attracted or repelled by, or we like or don't like, and we form opinions of approval or disapproval accordingly to our habits, to what we call our karma, the way we've been programmed to react to experience that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. So suffering is to be understood. And to understand something, you have to accept it. You know, if you just react to old age, I don't want to get old and try to, you know, stay young, that's suffering. Because the body, you know, is, is like this. It's not young anymore. There's no way I can 
you can make it younger. So to understand suffering, old age is like this, we use these words, it's like this, is, is not a judgment about old age or about how things should be as an ideal, but the way it is, it's like this. An old body is like this. And in this way of reflecting on experience, you, you, you don't attach to it, or if you are attached, to it, uh, you know, strongly identified with your age of your body, the gender of your body, and so forth. Then, then you, you just to understanding suffering, you let go of it. The body still is like this, you know. The the conditioned habits are, are you know, may not like getting old or getting sick, but. Uh, being mindful of the way it is, it's like this. At this very moment, whatever you're thinking or feeling, physically or emotionally, just by listening to me talk like this, this is the way it is. You know, can I say how you should react to what I'm saying uh, and how you should feel about what I'm saying? I can't do that because we can't help the way we feel in the present moment. It's like this, no matter whether it's happy, sad, pleasant or painful. So this, it's like this is a way of beginning to, to accept experience as, you, as it happens, rather than trying to control, resist, create all kinds of situations, endlessly confront life with seeing it through, through judgments, that we might have about it, but through just the awareness of the way it is, we begin to let go of these habits, these clinging habits that we acquired after we were born. And when we let go of the body, we let go of our feelings. We're not resisting or suppressing anything. We're just not attaching. We see the suffering that we create through this blind habitual attachment to, to thoughts, to ideas, to physical appearance, to values, moral precepts, right and wrong, how we, you know, we, uh, we become very fixated in, in, in our judgments about good and bad, right and wrong. And when we do that, then if we're attached to being right, then whoever doesn't agree with me is wrong. That's an enemy. If you don't agree with me, then, then I'm attached to my sense of righteousness then and you don't go along with it then you're wrong as that create you know a sense of opposition of fear of rejection and that's why the world is the way it is in the present situation in ukraine russia and ukraine you know the whole emphasis on who does ukraine belong to and and who's right and who's wrong and so they're fighting, destroying each other, 
murdering, killing, slaughtering, destroying cities and so forth over righteous views, deluded attachments to certain pre concepts. And so that's why wars happen because of this blind attachment to views and opinions, concepts, percepts. So in awakening to Dhamma, we begin to observe, witness, witness the suffering I create in my life by attachment, by attachment to conditions, to phenomena. And this is the whole emphasis when you talk about awareness, mindfulness, and wisdom is to let go of the, not to destroy the world or to, to, it's not about annihilation. It's not about resistance, it's about understanding and, and knowing for yourself the suffering you create through your attachments to views and opinions. So in monastic life, you know, you belong to a very traditional monastic order. And so, you know, you do we join the order to just change the perceptions to Buddhist ones? Do has Ajahn Sumedho become a Buddhist rather than a Christian? Uh, puts on a robe, becomes a bhikkhu. And uh, these are forms, these are conditions. Is it just about refining condition phenomena so that it's much nicer than it was before to get all kinds of concentration, refined concentration practices to live in a more refined emotional conceptual realm than the present materialistic one, or is it to realize one's true nature? So the forms that we have in, in this tradition, the Pali, because I, this is the tradition I practiced in, this is what I can speak from, the Pali teachings, the suttas, they're mainly, you know, not doctrinal positions, or metaphysical theorizing, but they're pointing to the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. So this is the main statement of, in, in you know, this is the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. So that's to be, not to be grasped as a doctrine, you don't have to believe it, but to witness to it, to observe impermanence how your mood changes according to the weather, according to how you feel, according to what you eat, according to who you're with. Are you the same person continuously through, from day to night? Are you the same personality when you're asleep? Where, do, where does personality come and go and change according to other conditions? Observing in my own experience, my personality changes according to who I'm with, the time of day, how I'm feeling. 
where I'm at. And the personality that I can witness, be aware of, the ego, is very unstable. So I can't find a kind of permanent Ajahn Sumato as a condition that I can, that is the same through the day and night. But what is here and now is that consciousness is not created. Consciousness, we can be aware of space, we can be aware of the four elements, the earth, fire, water, and air elements the conditions that arise and cease, that are born and die in space. And this is what the suffering is about, is attachment to unsatisfactory conditions. Because what we, a personality is, is an unsatisfactory refuge. Our emotional habits that we require are very unstable and depend on so many other factors. When we depend on on other people to to be there for us and at all events to be friends for a lifetime, these are ideals. But is that really a possibility? You know, it might be a good idea, something we long for, but people change according to other conditions. So in this world of, of inexorable changingness, we try to find stability in things that are, you know, by their very nature, unstable and creative. And then we wonder why we suffer or what's wrong with the United States or the political system or democracy or our relationships, our marriages, our friends and so forth. Why, why can't we all get along and love each other when that's an ideal that we, we might share? Why don't we just learn to get along? Why don't the Russians and the Ukrainians just stop fighting and learn to get along with each other and cooperate and help and support? And that's how it should be as an ideal. But right now it's like this. It's fighting over views, opinions, perceptions that are created by individuals whose very nature is unstable. So what is stable? And if one's personality is not stable, one's emotional habits change according to to other conditions and and uh, thinking mind, it can create all kinds of fears and possibilities for disaster. The future is is can be rather scary. Climate change is a is a perception that's very frightening. Is it it's not going to change for the better? We we the predictions are it's going to get worse. What does that do to your? emotional state in the present moment about the future or the past what about your past what mistakes you made in the past or the 
uh, things you shouldn't, that you feel guilty about, you regret. Or memories, happy memories, wandering on to memories of being happy and life being wonderful. Memories come and go and change. They're very unstable, untrustworthy. But what is trustworthy here and now? What is stable is conscious awareness here and now. And as you begin to investigate this for yourself, you begin to realize it, to be realized individually by the, through wisdom. So this Buddhist teaching is a teaching which is cultivating wisdom, which isn't learning more about Buddhism and, and getting degrees in PhDs in Buddhism or Abhidhamma or anything like that. It's your own ability to reflect on the, the impermanence of your physical body, the feelings it has, the senses, the sense organs, the emotions, the thoughts, the ideals, the perceptions, all the cultivated conditions, created conditions that we, out of ignorance, identify with. And that's the cause of suffering. So all conditions are impermanent is a teaching that I've used over 50 years because this was the two teachings that that are terribly important to reflect on all conditions are impermanent and dhamma is not personal not a personal ego or self so when you say all conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is not self, not, not a separate person. So what unites us is Dhamma. That's unitive because it's not created, it's not separate. And it's here and now, and you know you're conscious. But then when you try to think about it, what is consciousness? And this is the subject of modern psychologists, scientists at this time. What is consciousness? Is it inside your brain? Is, it, is, it, is consciousness limited to inside each individual? Is it you know, inside our bodies? And when the bodies die, the consciousness dies? Uh, you know, is a, and then that way, consciousness is very personal because I'm separate, physically separate from all of you. So it's my consciousness. But this very sense of my consciousness, me, is, is the illusion we create through identity with the physical body. Because our bodies seem so real, we have to live with them for a lifetime. And everything is that I see, hear, smell, 
face touch is always something coming from outside, objects of the senses, or the senses themselves start deteriorating. And the ego doesn't want blindness or poor vision or deafness. But as we age, you know, like the old people, talking to old people, you know, encourage, see, it's something to learn from. It's a teacher. It's an arjan. Old age is, is an arjan. Because we learn from it. If we can't learn from it if we identify with it. Because the ego doesn't want to get old. Or as you get old, some people want to die because the life becomes more difficult and you get, get put in care homes and, and you don't know what's going to happen and what about death? You know, when you die, where, what happens? Where will I, what will happen to me when I die is a big fear that most human beings share. So I encourage you to, to take these teachings and not just, and they're not about believing in them, but they're there for investigation. So we have one of the factors of enlightenment is called Dhamma Vichya, to, to investigate reality as we experience it. And these two phrases, all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is not personal is very reference points to begin to not just believe it because the Buddha said so, but to, to realize this, each one for yourselves. So I've been advised that I should stop talking <laughs> and, and open the remainder of time for questions. I'm hard of hearing, so Ajahn Asakyo must come and tell me what you're Could you discuss consciousness as one of the five aggregates? The five aggregates are all impermanent. So consciousness through the senses comes and goes and changes. But Dhamma, I'm just opening up to questioning. There's Dhamma, which is apparent here and now and doesn't change. And there's consciousness. When you let go of phenomena, of conditions, there's still consciousness. We call it empty consciousness. And um, 
you know, in a silent, it's silent, it's peaceful. It doesn't change according to condition. This you can realize for yourself. And in my life as a monk, monastic as a monk, I've had a whole, you know, decades of time to explore this. And so in Thailand, they, there's monks talk about jitwang or empty consciousness. And so I really explored that in my life as you know, over the past 50 years. What is emptiness or consciousness without attachment? So the consciousness in the five khandhas is dependent upon the body. You've got the rupa, vedana, sanya, sankhara, vinyana. That that's about the physical conditions that are very impermanent and unsatisfactory. So consciousness that we experience through the senses is is unsatisfying because if you know, like just losing your sight or your hearing is unsatisfactory. So conscious, I'm still conscious through the senses. I can kind of get a hazy view of you over there, but I, you know, it's not like I wish I could see more clearly and hear you without Ajahn Circle having to interpret. So there's, there's, references to consciousness invisible infinite being everywhere it's, it's part of the scriptures and this this particular phrasing i've never heard and before in thailand i've never heard any monk talk about it and where I heard it was in the Buddhist society in London by a, by a Parsi philosopher, a Persian philosopher, who was very much acquainted with the scriptures. And he was teaching at Buddhist society summer school every year about and so I found it in, I think it's in the Udana and several others. But that began to, to began to take an interest in visible, infinite splendor everywhere. And that's consciousness. So Winyanang is consciousness, but it's not eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, and so on. The consciousness operates, you know, like like sending your it's always operating through the senses. This is what we're conditioned to do, to to see, to hear, to smell, taste, touch, and think. This is all through the senses, through the brain, through the organs of the body that are very impermanent and unstable, can easily fall apart. But what is, you know, what I've found is what is permanent, what doesn't change no matter what is awareness, conscious awareness. And I relate that to Rinyanang Anidasanang Anantang Sapado Pabang, the consciousness 
invisible, infinite, everywhere. And in the elements, like the, the so much emphasis is placed on the solid element, the water element, the air element, the fire element, earth, fire, water, and air, and the impermanence of these elements, and then space and consciousness. So there's consciousness, then there's space, then there's the four elements. And you realize that space couldn't exist if there was no consciousness, or the elements couldn't manifest if there was no space. So it's consciousness that, that, that we can, that when we talk about conscious awareness, mindfulness, awakened conscious awareness, this is, this is what we can, each one of us as human individuals can, can realize for ourselves. And this is the end of suffering because in the third noble truth is the end of suffering. So with mindfulness, what they call connected mindfulness, not just mindfulness of objects through, through the senses, through awareness. You know, you, you, you suddenly lose your fascination for the forms in space, the thoughts, the views, the conditioning, the ego, you lose that, you're no longer very important. And what is uh, the reality that we can realize is awareness here and now, conscious, infinite, invisible, everywhere. And that, then when you realize the, the utter beauty of that, trying to find peace on the, through institutions, through, through cultural differences, through class identities, racial identities, endlessly trying to bring peace and love and kindness is very idealistic. But how can it be possible when each one of us has to live through the conditioning, the karma of our egos, our cultural conditioning, our whole way of thinking? But what transcends all that is, is conscious awareness, which is impersonal. So as a person, a person can't get enlightened. When we talk about the Buddha getting enlightened as a person, but that's just the best you can do with language, because your ego never becomes enlightened. It can't, because it's a creation. So in monastic life, monks trying to become enlightened, become stream enterers or arahants, you know, it's still part of the ego, wanting to get something you don't have. You know, I'm unenlightened, I want to become enlightened if I've sit in meditation, I, or we get, I'll get enlightened, or we look at various monks, uh, teachers as enlightened or unenlightened. But in terms of personality, I can't see how personality is not an enlightened personality, because it is just a creation, an illusion, 
of a separate self. Then your true nature, you know, when I tell people their true nature is perfect, they don't believe me. Because we're usually identified with what's wrong with us. What we think is weakness or fear or cowardice or guilt or, uh, you know, we, we, we endlessly analyze ourselves. Why do I, why do I have so much worries? How do I conquer anger and jealousy and fear? How do I get rid of these kind of unwanted emotional states? And, uh, you know, as a person, a personality is developed through all those states. It's part of the personality to fear, to be guilt-ridden, to be jealous, to be greedy, to want things that you don't have, to want to get rid of what you don't like. It's all very much conditioning. But what is transcends <clears throat> personality, the ego, the cultural conditioning, the language, is conscious awareness. The, you know, there can be no ego if there is no consciousness. So the consciousness, the ego is something in consciousness. It arises and ceases. And we begin to see, to recognize the end of suffering here and now. And then that's what we call stream entry. So when you have that first insight into the absence of the ego. And so that's why silence, the space between thoughts. You know, I used to, I've emphasized the importance of thinking rather than trying to figure out Dhamma with more words or study scriptures is to investigate to observe thinking itself. Because, you know, you can observe when, when you think one word, then, it, then there's nothing. So I'd take some kind of neutral statement that didn't arouse any strong emotions in me, like I am a human being. So that's a kind of matter of fact, belief doesn't arouse any strong feelings pretty boring thing to think and then then uh, you know just the word the english pronoun i just one letter and there's nothing and you begin to notice that to notice emptiness or nothing and then you intentionally think am before you think am it's there's nothing there that's just conscious awareness and then M is two letters, and then there's silence. And it's beginning to, you know, this is what we call connected awareness, is when you're not just connecting one word with another, one concept or opinion of you with another one, or making judgments about them, but observing the way it is. So over the years, just developing that awareness of the space between words and as I deliberately think. And when I was at Samanera, before I met Lung Po Cha, I had an insight that I had to stop thinking. And I tried to stop thinking 
because I had this insight. And, you know, I couldn't really stop thinking just as a desire to stop thinking. And uh, I thought I can't meditate, I just think, 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 and, and uh, I've got to stop thinking and I try to, you know, willfully stop myself from thinking, but I couldn't sustain it. You can't sustain just willful resistance to thoughts because it's still the ego operating. I've got to stop thinking. Where I started thinking, intentionally thinking, but not taking an interest in the words or the thoughts, but the space around them. And the silence that the, the, that the word arises in. What is that? It's fully conscious. It isn't programmed by culture, it's not personal. And it's as simple as that. It's just by, you know, intent. And then the fun of that kind of method was I started investigating all the thoughts, the thoughts I was afraid of. You know, just, just intentionally, deliberately thinking, but notice not taking an interest in the meaning or the words but in the space, the silence that they come and go into. And after a while, that silence became very strong. Because it's here and now, and it's not created. It's not, and it's certainly not personal. So out of this, you know, you begin to feel this oneness, this connection to everything, all the created conditions. The animal kingdom, the nature itself, the planet, the sun and moon and stars, because suddenly you realize consciousness has no boundary or limit. And, and this is just a form in consciousness. And consciousness doesn't die. It's infinite. It's invisible. Sensory consciousness, very unstable. So in the five khandas, that's what they're talking about. Sensory consciousness is impermanent. You speak of as we start to witness no self and transitory aspects and that as a doorway to connection of a reality that is anchoring. How does love and compassion relate within that? Well, in emptiness, then, the, like they have these four Brahma Viharas, Metta, Kuna, Mudita, Upega. Are they just ideals according, you know, you read them in the scriptures and they're beautiful ideas to have loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. They're all beautiful English <laughs> translations of these, these four Viharas, they're called dwelling places, Viharas. And, uh, but they're natural, 
they're not they're not just trying to be nice and spread loving kindness to everybody as a person anymore it's not like me being really nice and kind and in a good mood spreading loving kindness to all creation like it can be as a kind of when we think about it and to take it personally but it's conscious itself conscious empty consciousness is unconditioned love it includes everything it's non-judgmental and compassion then the sadness at the misery of others become apparent you see, you know, you see around you so much suffering, and you, isn't that you're totally indifferent to it, but you understand it, there's compassion, it's not just me being, feeling sorry for poor people or something like that, and then sympathetic joy, joy at life itself, at the beauty of nature, like we spent the past 10 days in Seattle and you know look at this what a Denver time it's kind of beautiful and and uh, went to to Ajahn Sudanto's hermitage beautiful to see there's a joy in that beauty it's a sympathy it's not trying to be joyful about beauty anymore but it's just the way it is it's it's spontane spontaneity and equanimity is peace so you find your refuge in conscious awareness in Dhamma, that's your refuge, then that's very peaceful. But it's not like indifferent, like you're a zombie or you're totally cut off from, from everything or you don't care anymore, but it's the, then the Brahma Viharas manifest quite spontaneously just through, through awakened awareness. So like loving kindness, metta is, you know, when you, this, the formula for spreading loving kindness, you spend, you spread loving kindness to the devils and the angels. You're not just spreading loving kindness to angels or more to angels and you don't spread as much loving kindness to devils. You know, that's the discrimination. <laughs> you know, devils are bad, angels are good. But it's no discrimination in, in awareness. There's no hatred there. It's so that's love. That's unconditioned love. Curious if since you stepped down as the abbot of the monastery, you've noticed any changes in what you focus on in your teaching or in your own practice? Since you stepped down from the Well, I've retired <laughs> ten years. 11, 12 years ago. <laughs> I found Amaravati in England and went back to Thailand for 10 years. And uh, it was, you know, but the mindfulness was a practice. So being mindful at Amaravati when you're the abbot of a monastery, you know, you, you attend meetings, you're kind of the leader, 
the central figure that everybody looks to and uh, and that's practice too you learn how to to use the situations for as they happen to as you happen to experience them so you know learning to to operate as a, as a senior monk as a teacher within that particular setting and you just keep learning as you go along because I remember uh, when Numpa Cha asked me to establish Wat Banana Cha, the branch monastery in Thailand, and I'd never been a teacher, or I was only eight, eight years as a bhikkhu, so I couldn't consider myself an Ajahn. And, uh, you know, so what was I to do, you know, and then, uh, you know, I've, uh, I found myself totally baffled by the situation, so I tried to act like Ajahn Chah. <laughs> and it didn't work. <laughs> it was false, you know, trying to be somebody else. And then I kept thinking about Ajahn Chah, what do I, what do I love about Lung Po Chah so much? And then he's not trying to act like Ajahn Man, his, his teacher. <laughs> he's exactly who he is. He's a kind of naturally free, happy human being. He is who he is. He's not trying to be a strict Ajahn or anything else. You know, there's a humor, there was kind of joyfulness about Ajahn Chah, and, and he wasn't playing roles with me. And so, you know, I really found that so inspiring. And I realized I had to just trust being who I am, learn from, from the way I operate, from experience itself. Even though, you know, I still made plenty of mistakes, you learn from them. What, what is useful? What isn't? What, how can you benefit the monks or nuns in the community? You know, and then, you know, you have certain, you, certain views, opinions arise and, and that, but you're aware that views and opinions, can you really grasp those opinions and operate from views or opinions or trusting more in awareness? And then the, it's, life becomes more spontaneous rather than programmed and, and fixed in kind of habitual patterns of thinking and operating in a community. So in Thailand, I lived in a really beautiful monastery in a very nice part of Thailand in what's called Wangnam Kyo, and it's it's high elevation. What about The weather there is really terrible, and I thought I'd be settling down in in Uwon and Wat Bananatat, but uh, it turned out I spent the past ten years in this place in uh, Korat province and uh, a quite beautiful place near, near a huge national park and uh, they built this very nice kuti, beautiful kuti and uh, the head monk Ajahn Yanadama was very generous and supportive and, and in the first I went there I you know, I'm trying to operate according to 
the strict high standard and going in about barefoot and and uh, you know I was I always had this ideal of how a bhikkhu should behave and and uh, especially when you're in Thailand <laughs> and uh, you know I, I just physically couldn't co co uh, do that anymore. You know, I've got a numb feet. They don't, you know, I tend to fall over. So Ajahn Yanadamo encouraged me to just eat in my kuti, not go in the barn. And uh, I was very grateful for that because it recognizes recognize the, the limitations of an aging form. But, you know, the old uh, habit patterns from Bhikkhu training and all that still operate, still influence you. And, you know, so you, you have that as a, but the, the Vinaya, the traditional disciplinary forms are very, you know, they, they, you, you see them in terms of rather than absolute right and wrong, good and bad, but Helpful, helpful suggestions for awareness in daily life for for this particular form of bhikkhu, Buddhist monk form. So that still works, but it's no longer identified with it. Or if there is identity, you know, because there's in monastic life, there's a lot of fear of being criticized, of making making a mistake, of being wrong, of being looked down on and things like that. So in monastic life, you still, the egos can flourish strongly if, if you don't have awareness and wisdom to deal with it. Because the Dhamma, when the Buddha established Dhamma first, and the form itself, the Vinaya, was merely a, a, a form created by a human being to allow the tradition of the teachings of the Buddha to be carried from one generation to the next. That's why we have, there must have been millions of enlightened Buddhas who nobody knows about because they didn't establish any conventions to operate from. But enlightenment or awareness is natural to us. And that's what the Buddha pointed out. How like the Four Noble Truths is a very simple teaching. It's not complicated, abstract ideas or metaphysical theories. It's all incredibly practical and to the point. So in Thailand, I had to deal with uh, with uh, being a retired old monk, not having any duties, and. Uh, being alone all the time and uh, on and on like that. That's quite interesting because, you know, so much of my life had been in the center of activities. And then suddenly you're, you're alone in a very nice country. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn from it all, you know, so it, in, in, in that silent in that aloneness, the silence became so strong. 
there's one one of those scriptural teachings that I love and teach over and over is there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And if there was not the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there'd be no way, there'd be no escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. So I thought that escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. And I thought that's what I want to do. I want to escape from the born, the created, the formed. I'm so tired of myself and my boring personality that, you know, by age 30, you know, I was pretty fed up with life. And, uh, and I thought, am I going to have to spend 30 more years with these same thoughts? It's just habits that keep reoccurring, repeating themselves. And, and, uh, and that's why I became a monk, was I thought the one way I might be able to resolve this problem is to, I did have a, a real interest and trust in Buddhism, so that's why I went to Thailand and ordained. But in the silence, I always loved the silence behind the noise. <clears throat> then in the monastery that I stayed in, they were always constructing buildings. <laughs> and the head monk is just crazy about cement. And so, <laughs> the whole, there's so many cement piles, and you know, just uh, there's so many cement buildings and things in the, in the monastery. And then they built this beautiful kuti for a living, and then they built another a hospital kuti right nearby. And in the 10 years that I lived there, there was always construction going on. <laughs> and the, the abbot kept apologizing for the noise. But I didn't mind it. You know, if you, if, if you recognize silence, then noise just comes and goes in silence. So, and then Thai forests are not silent. There's a lot of life in, in the jungles in Thailand. And they have elephants that run into the monastery and, they, <laughs> and snakes. <laughs> you know, in Amavati, there are no elephants or snakes. So, you know, England's very kind of safe place to live. Right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just use the situation. If you're frightened, you observe it. If you hate the noise, you resent this construction, it's like this. They had these noisy peacocks nesting outside my kutia. And as beautiful as these peacocks are to look at, they make the most horrible noise. <laughs> and suddenly you're meditating and they, they rah, rah, rah. And <laughs> One lived just right outside, up in the trees over my kuti, and I kept hoping it would go away somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but observing that, you know, I wasn't, I, I knew better than to just be negative about it. I could use the annoyance I felt. And, and it comes and goes, and I'd wait. And, and just by 
allowing annoyance to be, it ceases. Construction noises are impermanent. Peacock cries are impermanent. So all conditions that arise cease. And in their cessation is peace. This, the cessation of conditioned phenomena. So death is peaceful rather than annihilation. Like if you're attached to the body, then there's a lot to fear. What's going to happen to me when I die? And then there's all kinds of, do you go to heaven or hell or is it oblivion or rebirth or reincarnation? There's all kinds of attempts to explain what happens after death from people who haven't died. <laughs> so then what is the deathless, the unborn? There is the unborn. And so I used to try to, you know, I could imagine born, things born, things that begin and end. I, my imagination is quite vivid. You know, I can create all kinds of fantasies or visions or that with my mind. They come and go. But what is unborn? And you couldn't imagine it. There's no image of the unborn. So just the word imagination or image, there's, there's no way your intellect can imagine the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. But the Buddha said there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. So I trusted the Buddha's words. He wouldn't be saying that if it wasn't true. And apparent here and now, what is it? It's conscious awareness. And it's silent. And it's non-judgmental. So, you know, then the, all these theories about rebirth, reincarnation, heaven, hell, or oblivion are just empty phenomena that human beings create when they don't know what they're talking about. 